Welcome to A Voice from the Hills. I'm James Warner, co-founder of Silicon Hills Wealth Management here in Austin, Texas. And we are pleased to be joined on today's podcast by Samantha Russell. If you don't know the name Samantha Russell, you'll know it soon enough. She's the chief evangelist for FMG Suite and a consistent voice for how marketing can and should be done, both for small businesses in general and more specifically for businesses in the wealth management industry. Samantha was named one of wealth management's top 10 to watch in 2021. She combines her love for teaching with her keen understanding of client-focused digital marketing to provide a blueprint for how small businesses can and should engage with their clients and potential clients in the future. Samantha's a constant creator and distributor of marketing content, best practices, and she has a unique grasp on the opportunities and struggles that the small business owner encounters as they try to match the value propositions of their firms with the motivations and needs of their potential clients and partners. Samantha combines a love of learning with a desire to share what she has learned along the way. And we are so fortunate to have her as a guest on today's podcast. And we are so excited to introduce you to one of the marketing industry's true emerging talents, Samantha Russell. James Werner is the founding partner of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by James, his co-host, and guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Silicon Hills Wealth Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Good morning, Samantha, and thank you for joining us. On behalf of financial advisors and small businesses everywhere, thank you so much for all the work you do. I I can't think of anyone that puts out more practical and valuable advice on a more regular basis. (laughs) That is so, so kind and music to my ears because that's really what I'm all about is everybody, I feel like at this point when it comes to marketing, if you're paying attention at all as a business owner, you got the philosophy of why you should be doing something. But the nitty gritty how and the tangible tips, you know, that's really what we all want and need. And I felt that way when I was first starting out um, running a business. So it's my mission to offer that. So I appreciate you having me and I'm glad to be here. And, and you create so much of your content. So what's your secret? What's your creative process look like? Oh, geez. I don't feel like it's a secret. I've said this lots of times with people before is anytime anyone asks me a question, I figure if one person has that question, more than one person has that question. So if somebody asks me something really broad or super specific, I just write it down. I use something called Evernote. I'm sure many people have seen that before. It can be an app on your phone, on your desktop, whatever system you want to use. And I just have a running list of common questions that I get asked. And I write them down in the words or phrases that the person asked me. So I don't rewrite them the way I would ask the question. I write it the way a novice or a lay person who's not you know, in marketing would ask it. And then I think about how can I best answer it? Could it be a video? Could it be a full blog post? Is this a one hour webinar with a guest? Is it just a long form social media post? Is it a Twitter thread? Sometimes it's more than one of those things. And when I first think about answering it, I'll usually kind of try it out on social media first to see what kind of response I get. And then I can tweak it for the more robust content, like a video based upon the reactions that I get from it. 
Yeah, and I noticed that one of the things I always like about your work is that you're always focusing on the client or the customer or the the person that's seeking our help or seeking our services. Uh, And so that's always really important because I I think as business owners, we can get too involved in how we see our business and not involved enough in how the people that we're trying to help are going to see it. Before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about you. You're from a big family. Is that right? I am. I'm the oldest of six children. My mom is one of eight. Her mom was one of 11, (laughs) really big Catholic families. Grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. And now I have two kids of my own with one more on the way. So we have a very robust family. So how old's your youngest sibling? She is 25. 25. Okay. So you, so she had them all. You had a lot of kids running around the house, huh? Yeah. My mom had six kids in nine and a half years. So we are all very close in age and it was a lovely way to grow up. I have to say we grew up in a more of like a blue collar uh, working class neighborhood in Cleveland and everybody was sort of on the same playing field. So there was no like keeping up with the Joneses as much as I could tell. (laughs) We went to Catholic school. Everyone wore uniforms. There was no comparing things there. And it was just very, it was a very idyllic childhood for sure. And so I imagine you got really good at sharing. <laughs> I did. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Now, and as I understand from listening to some of your other podcasts, communication wasn't always your strength. You struggled with that a little bit when you were in your formative years, didn't you? Yes. I just, um, on with Suzanne on um, Investnet's Big Reveal podcast, I revealed, which it did make me nervous at the time, but my big reveal was I have struggled my whole life with a really bad lisp, actually. So I had this speech impediment and I used to have to go to these speech therapy classes and the lady who would help me had me sit in front of a mirror for an hour a day. It felt like, I'm sure it was less than that, but that's what it felt like as a kid and have me practice different words. And really I never was quote unquote cured from it or what happened was by the fourth or fifth grade, I just told my mom, I can't do it anymore. I don't care if I have a lisp or not. People are just going to have to accept me for who I am because I was so sick of the speech therapy classes. And it sort of just resolved itself over time, but it still will come out sometimes if I talk too fast or if I've had two glasses of wine, (laughs) sometimes you'll hear it come out. But do you think that having to overcome those challenges, has that really contributed to your success? I mean, because you, you strike me as one of those never give up type people. Oh, well, do you thank think you. you started I mean, forming that at an early age? I think what it did was it made me not be afraid to just kind of put myself out there. And if people didn't like certain things about what that was, that I was okay with it. I've had experiences with putting out content or getting feedback about the way I look in a video from like these internet trolls. And I joke all the time that once you've been trolled, you've, you're making it. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Nobody cares enough to like, it's so weird to have a stranger you don't know, leave a negative comment. But I just take, I think it's easier to take it in stride when you're used to being teased or made fun of from a young age. So have you always wanted to do what you're doing now? Was it a progression? Was there a light bulb moment? Uh When I was a kid, I really wanted to be a teacher. I used to play school incessantly and always telling my brothers and sisters, come on, let's play school and love to be a teacher. And I think that that passion for teaching has been the through line through everything I've done and that I just love figuring out ways. I love to learn. I'm an incessant reader and I love to then share what I've learned with other people. And I was doing that even before 
I was in this chief communicator, chief evangelist role. So I think that that has always been something that has been a hallmark of any job that I've done, even when, so my first job out of college, I worked for Penn State University planning events for alumni and donors. And I was that person who would always be like reading research, finding out what the latest, hottest trends and events were in higher education, and then sharing it with our team and trying to bring people together to powwow and brainstorm. So yeah, I think that education component has been the through line of everything I've done. Well, you're still a teacher at heart. Anybody who looks at any of your stuff on YouTube, that that's really what you're doing is just teaching us how to do our jobs better. So you work primarily with financial advisory firms, but I would think that most of your advice transcends pretty much any small business. Yeah, what I would you- say, oh, I was going to say most of the, what I teach, I think would be any like service-based business. So sometimes it's a little different if you're selling widgets or something, but sure, any service-based business. Yes, absolutely. But what do you find that firms are doing right? What do we do better today than we did five years ago? I think it's funny, even five years ago, things were really different. The pandemic has made a lot of people get a lot more right because they didn't have a choice. Um, The focus and understanding on the importance of your digital, you know, footprint, your digital flagship, and the idea that thousands of more people will meet you for the first time online than will ever meet you in person, step foot in your office. People finally get that now. That was a shift that even in 2019, I would still have conversations with people and they just weren't convinced, but 2020 changed all that. And now people understand that it's table stakes to have a amazing website and to have the properties on LinkedIn and Facebook and what have you appear correctly when someone does a Google search on you. So I have seen a big shift in the understanding and the adoption of that from service-based businesses across the, the states. And so with that in mind, where do we struggle? What opportunities are we consistently missing? That list is probably longer. <laughs> so I think that, yes, the some of the big ones are, there's such a reliance in the industry still on referral marketing. The idea that we're constantly bombarding our clients and saying, the biggest compliment you can give me is a referral. And the problem with that is it's a very reactive process. It puts the ball in your client's court to hope and pray that they're going to think to refer you to people. So the shift that's happening and is underway right now is getting a client to get leave you a review like on Google or, or provide a testimonial once, and then you can repurpose that in your marketing over and over again. And I've seen very little adoption on that, partially because the SEC ad rule just changed and went into effect May 4th of this year. And there's a lot of nuance to it. And a lot of compliance departments are still figuring out how they're going to enforce it. But even with other small businesses, with law firms, with services like that, I still see people hoping and praying for referrals more than the Google reviews. The other thing that I think people struggle with just in all of these service-based industries is really doing marketing that speaks the the to the needs and the psychology of the person doing a search looking for your service. So they still speak very high level jargony, very professional buttoned up instead of cutting to the chase of what is keeping the person up at night? Why are they looking for this type of service? What are those core emotions behind the human psychology, you know, part of why we're searching for what we're searching for? And 
it's almost like you need to dumb down your messaging, right? So you need to make it so that I always say a sixth grader who visits your website would understand who you are, what you do, why you do it. And that's the kind of messaging that gets noticed and that helps build rapport with somebody. If you read a lot of websites in these service-based industries, the language that's used is never how you would actually talk to somebody when they step foot in your office. But we still have this feeling like we need to be very buttoned up and professional to be taken seriously. And so that's a shift that really needs to happen as well. And we all think we're better writers than we actually are. <laughs> that's, that's almost universal. One, one of the things you said that I really enjoy is you said that really good messages either attract or repel. Yes. I think that's a that's such a smart statement because I think when we do marketing, we're almost averse to having our message repel anyone. I mean, we don't want to repel just by nature, but the reality of it is great marketing tells people who should be your customers that they should be and tells those who shouldn't that they shouldn't be interested. Is that what you mean by that? And how does a firm actually test whether their message is an attraction and a repelling message or if it's just a message that really isn't, is it moving the needle one way or the other? Yeah, it's such a good question. And yes, so you got the the gist of it, which is if your messaging is really well done and on point, it will, when I say repel, I don't mean like turn people off and they have to be insulted by it, but it will make some people think, oh, this business is not a good fit for me because the messaging is so specific of who is a good fit for that business that by nature, it can't be everyone, right? So if your messaging calls out a certain type of occupation that you serve or a person with a certain amount of income or a person who has a specific problem in their life, or they live in a certain part of the country, whatever it is, anyone that doesn't fit that mold is not going to be a good fit. But the people that find you who are in that classification are immediately going to be able to self-qualify. And good marketing, we want people to be able to self-qualify, right? There's such a shift in sales and marketing culture just in general over the years. And marketing now does a lot more of the selling for us than it ever could before just because of technology and, and the way we can do things. But the messaging is crucial to get right. And so a way to test this, there's a couple of different things you can do. I like to start with your website because that should be the hub and really the foundation of all of your other messaging. And there's something called the five second test. So it's a test we use in marketing and user experience and design. And basically what you do is you get your laptop, your iPad, whatever, you pull up your website and you show somebody who doesn't know what you do. So a stranger at a coffee shop, you can go online. There's like usertesting.com and hire people by the hour to do it. But basically you show them your homepage for five seconds and then you close it and then you ask them a series of questions. So things like, what does this business do? What's this business all about? What do you remember seeing on the page? Who does this business serve? Who would be a good fit for this business? And if they get like 80% of it right, then you've done a good job, right? Because it's only five seconds. But if they're maybe only getting 20% of it right, or out of the 20 people you ask, only half of them have any clue, then you know you have your work cut out for you. So you want to be highly, highly specific in that key message of who you are, what you do, and who you do it for. And so that's really the essence of the five-second test. Yes. So in terms of social media, you have a couple axioms too. I think it's not the five second test. I think it's the five for one, uh, yeah, five for one 80, model when you talk about comments and rule. posting. 
Can you kind of explain that to the audience? Yes. So what I always say is that when it comes to social media, so many businesses, if somebody's listening right now and they're a financial advisor or they own any kind of business, typically you're trying to build traction on social media and you might have a hundred followers to your business's Facebook page. And that's really hard to grow without throwing money at it when you have such a small network. And so people will always ask me, well, what's the secret to growing on social media? And I tell them, if I were to look at your page right now, I bet you have the media part of social media down, which is maybe once every couple of days or every day even, or once a week, you share something, right? You share media, a link to your website, your blog, whatever. But the social part is what's missing. And so the 80-20 rule tells us that for every every one thing that we post, so a blog post, a link to our website, a New York Times article, whatever, we should be leaving comments on five other people's posts. And so that's the social part of social media. And the reason this is so important is because social media, on social media, comments are currency. So for every comment I leave on someone else's page or profile, it's like giving them a dollar. And so when I go and post something, right, just for the rules of reciprocity, they're going to be a lot more likely to give me that dollar back and leave a comment on my page. And sure. that's the currency that we engage in. And because of the way the algorithms work, the more comments you get on any post, the more the algorithm will say, this is great content. It's getting engagement. We want to show it to more people because LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, they're in the business of keeping people on their platforms as long as possible. So that 80-20 rule is really key. If you're going to post on LinkedIn once a day, five days a week, then that's 20 comments you better plan to leave. And don't just leave them on people's accounts that you already know, but those second and third degree connections, maybe you see, oh, Ryan Smith left a comment on John Jones' post and it's something interesting and you can add to the conversation. Even if you don't know John, you can go and start commenting. And that's really how you expand your network and your following. Yeah. And I think, too, the other thing that's important is to comment on things that truly interest you, that you actually read. I, I see a lot of comments on social media sometimes, and it's obvious that the person maybe just read the headline of the article <laughs> or maybe not even that. I mean, it's it's almost like they were trying to get their five comments in before breakfast. <laughs> yeah, and the comments, and that's a really good point too. Saying great post or this is interesting or I love this is not enough. It needs to be something where you can actually add to the conversation. Maybe you have a different opinion, like, oh, this is interesting. I actually think X, Y, or Z. Or, oh, have you ever seen that study that showed blank? So it should be something that furthers the conversation that isn't just a pat on the back to somebody. It really needs to be a more engaging level of comment. How do you accomplish that engagement without being confrontational? I mean, I, I see some people online that just, it's just strange. They, they seem to always comment in all caps and it seems to always be challenging somebody's idea. Even when they partially agree, they just seem combative. That's so true. And we lose a lot with the nonverbal going away and only having text. Definitely do not use all tap. I laugh so hard when I see the all caps. It's like someone screaming, <laughs> screaming at you. Turn the all caps off. 
tip number one. But I think whenever you can acknowledge somebody else's point before you argue yours, it's always helpful. And it shows that you're being considerate of their viewpoints. Even something as simple as, oh, that's this is an interesting take, or I'd never considered it before. Here's how I look at this. Just acknowledging that their viewpoint isn't wrong just because it's different usually will go a long way in making you not seem combative. And one of the things I've found just in my own practice is that the building of community within your industry is just as important as maybe the marketing to potential new businesses or customers. I mean, it's when I think of being social on social media, it gives you the opportunity to, you know, to really branch out. I think I talk more with advisors in Chicago now on a daily basis than I do with advisors in Austin. It's just a, yeah. It's just a strange way how that sets up, but I don't know that I started out with that as a goal, but I, I quickly understood that that was a really great way to broaden your reach and to find people who know things that you don't, to find people who have interests that you don't, and to really be able to help each other. Right. Uh, I mean, it's not, the not new, as competitors, but as a community, really. And it's really the new centers of influence. You know, people for years and years were like thinking about growth through centers of influence, even if you don't want to become super active on Twitter, which is such a great place, as we both know, to connect with those in your industry. But for some people, they just, they're not going to be on Twitter. Okay, that's fine. But even on Facebook in your local community, if you, you know, are an estate planning attorney and a big part of how you might get a lot of your new business is from other business owners who are working with different people in the community, referring them to you. So connecting with those people, commenting on their content, engaging with them, you can think about how many more little interactions you can have in a day on Facebook or on Twitter with other business owners in your community than you could ever accomplish in person. You could try to set up coffee you know, every morning with a different person, but it, and that, that, that has a place too. I'm not saying it doesn't, but so much of marketing and keeping your business top of mind is about consistency and social media really fills that void for all of us and, and just keeps us top of mind with others. And the other thing I've noticed is the people that I've come to know on social media that I ended up getting to meet in person, they almost there was no surprises. It was, you know, the authenticity of who they were on social media was just, just played out as soon as I met them. I felt like they'd been a friend for years, right? just because I had a little bit better idea what made them tick. And so sharing a little bit about you individually and your quirks, and it doesn't always have to all be about business because we're not always, always a, you know, we're not always about business, right? We, we've got families, we've got interests, we've got hobbies, we've got foods that we like and don't like. And when I first got on Twitter, nobody ever commented on anything I said about financial planning. But if I could, if I said something negative about Brussels sprouts, I would, I'd get 45 comments. It was just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was crazy. And then I would find that, well, okay, I know these 20 people hate them and these 20 people love them. So that's just one more piece of knowledge that I have about you know, the community that's interacting with me. I think one of the things that's hard for a lot of people is they want to skip past all of the niceties and like they want to just go right to the growth strategy. So they're like, well, who cares if whether this person likes Brussels sprouts or not? And why does it matter if this person, if you know about this person's kids? But I mean, think about once you have someone in your office, how much of the meeting is focused on hearing updates about 
their grandkids or their family or where what new restaurant they tried and all of that knowledge that helps you then be a better serve them better in a way that you can attend to their needs you can think about what they would like or wouldn't like you can anticipate the the needs that they might have before they even have them so like I, for instance our financial advisor knows that we're about to have another baby. Before we even had to bring it up, he was messaging us saying, oh, I know that Ryan's car, my husband, um, is really best suited because it's more of a sports car for just the two car seats in the back. So do you guys want to discuss in our next financial planning meeting about a different car? Like I'll put that on the agenda, right? If he hadn't ever talked with us before about what cars we happen to have, he would never even know to to bring that up. All these little bits of information that we glean are building that relationship. So I think there's so much importance to it, but sometimes we tend to think it's trivial. It's really not. It's just as important. It all works together. No, I mean, when when a client tells you, I can't believe you remember that about me. I mean, that's right. probably the highest compliment you can get. I mean, that that's the, you know, you know, that's them letting you know that they're engaged and they understand that you are. I mean, that's, and it could just be this most innocuous thing in the world, but it's not the most innocuous thing to them. And the fact that you know it, you know, just puts you in a different, puts you in a different category, in my opinion. So you get an engaged client like that. Obviously, they want to give testimonials. They want to give online reviews. How can business owners leverage those kind of testimonials? How can they kind of nudge their biggest fans to, you know, go and leave a testimonial? What what can they do? What can we learn from people who've been using this in a profitable manner? Yeah, great question. So I think the first the first thing is to remember to ask at a time when somebody's more likely to leave a review. So you just did something for that person or they just had a great experience or they just hit a milestone or a goal that you helped them accomplish. The service that you provided was great. That's a good time to remember to ask. The other thing is, Make it as easy as possible for someone to give you that review. So if you sign up with Google My Business, which is a free tool that every business owner um, who has a listing in Google Maps can can utilize, there once you set up your account and you fill it all out and claim it, there is a special link um, and you can do something as easy as Google, how do I get my individualized Google review link and that'll walk you through the steps. But you get a special link that you can send people and you can send it to 100 people all at once or one-on-one. If you're in financial services, it's best compliance practice to send it to everybody on your client list when you are asking for reviews just from an audit perspective. It doesn't look like you're trying to just cherry pick certain people. But send that link out to people and say, hey, however you want to word it, but it would be great if you could take just a minute and leave us a review on Google And it's so easy that people are going to be much more likely to do it rather than if you just send them an email and say, hey, when you get around to it, could you send me a testimonial or some thoughts about how we've helped you, right? People know how to leave reviews on Google. We do it for hotels we stay at, for jeans that we buy. So sending them that link, it's going to be much more likely that they complete it there. And then once they've left a review, you can repurpose it anywhere you want. So you can choose the three best reviews and put them on your website under client testimonials. The only caveat, if you're in financial services, and this is best practice, honestly, I think for all businesses, but from a transparency perspective, is to have a little button at the bottom of the ones you've highlighted on your 
website that says see all of our reviews over see all the reviews. sure so people can easily find them but you can use them in your other marketing materials like social media posts um client newsletters whatever the case may be and when somebody does google your business now that's going to be one of the first things they see on the right side of the page is your google my business profile with all of those reviews so I think just asking and being making it as easy as possible for someone to leave that review is really the key. And do you think people are interacting first with websites now? Or are they interacting first with content that's been repurposed somewhere else and then that's driving them to the website? It really depends on the firm, I will say. There are some prolific content creators. If the more niche specific you can be, the more likely that it could be your content first. So a great example, there's an advisor we work with and, and he has a blog post, can capital gains push me into a higher tax bracket? And he has gets tens of thousands of visitors to his website from that blog post every single quarter. And it's highly specific for executives in the Twin City area. So that blog post is how a lot of people are finding him and coming across him for the first time. But if you are not that niche down and that niche specific, it might just be somebody is doing a search for a financial advisor, Annapolis, or they ask four or five of their friends, they get four names, and then they go to your website. So it really just depends on how niche specific you are and how much content you really create. And one thing I've noticed with a lot of different businesses is they'll create content, distribute it once. And then it's gone and forgotten. Yeah. And, you know, what we're trying to do here, and I think what more businesses are trying to do is when you get something and you find something that hits, you never really know what it's going to be. It seems like every time I think something's going to be really popular, I get three people that look at it and, and that's it. And when I think something's just kind of a throwaway that I think, well, gosh, we'll, we'll go ahead and put it out, but I don't know what we're going to get from it. That's what gets the engagement. I'm not very good at predicting what, people are going to be engaged by. But once you find that, you should keep hammering and keep repurposing and keep using that that message. Because if it worked once, it'll work again. And you can even take something that was time specific and really turn it into evergreen content if if you really just sit back and think about it. I, I think for a lot of businesses, especially small businesses where you have one proprietor and maybe a very small staff, they just don't have maybe the time or the creative ability or, or the infrastructure or what have you to do that. How would you, how would you tell that person who's just starting, maybe they're just starting their own financial planning firm or just starting their own law firm or dental practice or what have you, what advice would you give them as they start out in this social media marketing repurposing world? So the first thing is just to remember the adage. This is something I say all the time. Just when you feel like you're going to throw up if you have to say or repeat the same message one more time, most people will just be hearing it for the very first time. So we tend to want to reinvent all of our messages all the time. But think about just the amount of tweets or Facebook posts or LinkedIn posts or ads that any one person sees in a day. I mean, it is just an avalanche, right? Your message getting noticed by even a tenth of your network in a given day is highly unlikely. 
And so you need to be okay with the fact that you're going to be repeating yourself very often and just kind of get comfortable with that. Don't, you just have to resist the urge to constantly change your message. So once you've hit on the messaging that works, latch onto it, and then you can come up with different variations of, of that message. And what I mean by variations is you might use a visual one time, you might use a video one time, it might be a long form blog post another time. If you're just getting started and you have a small staff, the, the best way I can suggest to get started is whatever your most comfortable medium is. If you like to write, then maybe it's an 1800, 2500 word blog post. If you like, you prefer to talk it out and you're good being on camera, maybe it's a four or five minute video. Maybe it's a podcast that's 30 minutes, but get that, uh, you know, baseline content created on this very specific topic and then create all different kinds of media within that piece. So if you have a video you record, you then transcribe it. So it now is written out as a blog post form. And then maybe add, you talked about some stats or studies, get visual graphs of those and add them into the content to break it up. Or if you're a, a dental office, maybe you're talking about before and afters of a, a certain procedure, include all those pictures of the before and afters in that piece. Whatever it is, you want to have all different kinds of medium in the one thing you're going to share. Then you can repurpose it by one day on LinkedIn, you might share a picture of the before and after or, or the chart about the markets with a link to your blog post. Another time you might upload the raw four minute video on its own and just talk about why the topic is so important. And then another week you might just share a stat on Twitter and not link to the blog post, but just have it be like a standalone thing that you shared in this piece. So you can see now how you can start to get 10, 12, 20 different social media posts, emails that go out from this one thing that you've created. So say say one thing multiple times until you're just almost sick of saying it. And then say it in the best way you can say it, whether that's voice, print, or video. And then once you do that, convert that to as many other mediums as you can. Exactly. And that's, that's not a bad start. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> now, I mean, one of the things I, I love that you did seven predictions for 2021. I don't know if you even remember doing that I in do. terms of trends. And you really nailed a couple of them. Did anything surprise you in terms of how it didn't materialize or maybe even materialize stronger than you than you imagined? Any one or two of them come to mind? I think that how many people embraced video is about what I thought it would be. But I think that I thought more like firms, that the really larger service provider firms, RIAs, things like that, would be ones that would adopt it and put their get a spokesperson from the company and put them on on camera that has happened a little bit less than I than I thought also with a lot of the thing a lot of the conversations around cryptocurrencies one of the things I predicted was that it was going to be constantly in the headlines and a great opportunity to be a part of the conversation whether you agree it's a good asset class or not and instead, I've seen a lot of people just stay away from it and wouldn't touch it with a 30-foot <laughs> pole because they're so nervous about it, whereas it is so much a part of our culture and our conversation, especially in financial services. I'm, I'm surprised more people, like I said, positive or negative, didn't create more content around it. 
Yeah, it's definitely an engaging topic. Whether you're a pro or a con on the investment concepts of it, uh, not talking about it at all is probably a mistake. Yes. The subscription one was another one where, you know, offering subscription-based services, I've seen a lot of people get interested in it in 2021, but not necessarily roll it out yet. So I think the rollout of that, we are going to see a huge numbers take that up in 2022. Now, I don't want to steal all your thunder for 2022, but I assume you're going to put out something similar for... Uh maybe end of year 2021 focusing on 22 give us one trend to focus on what's one thing we should pay attention to so we already sort of talked about it but one of the big ones is using social proof in your marketing so by social proof the concept has been around a long time but it basically just tells us that as human beings when we don't know how to make a decision we don't feel like we have enough information we look to our peers and see what they've done. And we kind of trust that others, the good and bad experiences they have are going to be reliable for how it's going to go for us. And so that is why online reviews are so huge because it's just a really, really compelling source of social proof. So I think that this new SEC ad rule for financial services and being able to utilize Google reviews and other kinds of reviews is going to be a huge trend for 2022. Yeah, we we get that a lot with people wanting to to personally benchmark wherever they are in terms of how do we'll, I compare we'll, to everybody else? Yeah. How do I compare to your other clients? And I think whether you're sitting in the dental chair or in the financial advisor's office or, or whatever, you're constantly thinking, okay, what are other people in my situation doing? What am I doing? Well, what could I be doing better? Yeah. The other one that's really interesting that I've been talking a lot about is this, the great wealth transfer, right? So we've been hearing the great wealth transfer is coming. It's coming. It's here now. There was a really great study done by the Spectrum Group where they asked people, how much of your wealth can you attribute to inheritance? And they looked at, they broke it down into different groups. So the 25 million plus group, the 5 million to 25 million group, And back in 2007, 2008, about 20% of people would, in those groups of ultra high net worth, would attribute some of their wealth to inheritance. Then they re-ran the same study in 2022. I'm sorry, we're not in 2022 yet, in 2020. And they found that 66% of the 25 million plus group now cites inheritance as being important to their wealth creation. So that money has been been you know transferring, and a big marketing opportunity is really how do we keep the kids of the clients that we have as clients? What kinds of services are they looking for? What cost structures, fee structures, subscription based models? What's important to them? That is going to be a huge opportunity this year. Yeah. And who do they want to work with? What does that person look like? What are their skills? What are their, because they probably don't want to work with the same financial advisor that mom and dad worked with necessarily, but they might still want to work with the same company. Right. (laughs) And then Samantha, if I appointed you as marketing director for a smaller firm for a day, where would you start? Oh, geez. Just for a day. Well, I'll give you a year. (laughs) Okay. That's a little bit better. On day one, I think I would really take stock of what messaging we've been using as a firm and how do we tweak it to resonate with more people. I shouldn't say more people, with the the right people immediately. Do that attract and repel, right? So 
whatever that main messaging is, is going to be the basis of everything that we do. And so I would start by really, really paying attention to who are the clients we currently have? How many clients do we want to get in the next five to 10 years? What do those clients look like? What is going to be important to them? And then create messaging around that. So that would be immediate thing that we would do. Then I would go and look at all of our digital properties, our website, email campaigns, social media, and try to rewrite everything to be focused um, on you focus instead of we focus. So what I find is most people feel more comfortable talking about themselves than the problems that the people that they help have. So they'll say things like, we've been in business for 35 years instead of you're looking for a stable firm who wasn't going anywhere, right? So how can we reword messaging so that it's focused on that what's in it for me mindset that any consumer has rather than here's why we're so great. That's great advice. So just to summarize, start with a review of your digital marketing inventory. Make sure that your messaging is consistent and understand that what may be known to your firm is just being introduced to a potential client for the very first time. And above all, we need to make sure that our messaging is focused on the client. What's in it for them? What's important to them? Samantha, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate you having me. Just a reminder that you can follow Samantha on social media. She's a terrific follow. You can subscribe to her YouTube channels for access to all of her already released content and also to get alerts on the new content as she makes it available, and she does so regularly. Financial advisory firms can connect with Samantha through the FMG site, and I hope you'll all join me in wishing Samantha, Ryan, and the entire Russell family well as they welcome their newest addition to the family later this month. We thank you so much for listening and engaging with us and invite you to follow us on social media, subscribe to our channels, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you choose to listen. Because we can only do our best work If you are here to listen, thank you.